Oh, okay. I started in March. I think it was March of 70. And by the time the fall came, I was hooked. Thanks for tuning in to the Travel Grind podcast, where we talk about not just the places, but also the people in the wide, wide world of travel. I'm Andy Ridgway, and in this episode, I'm talking to Steve Ridgway, who has achieved a feat seldom seen in any era, but even more rare in modern times. He's been in the travel biz for his entire career, and that career just shot past the 50-year mark and still going strong. The two of us touch on how he fell into the job in the first place, what's made him stick with it for this long, and why he doesn't feel like it's a big surprise that someone has stayed in travel for the long haul. Then, without trying to make him feel too old, we will talk a little bit about what travel was like when he got started way back when, and how things have changed, about some of the technology, or lack thereof, of course, and even get into some predictions for the future of the travel industry. Hopefully you can glean a few insights into the what, why, and how of it all during our short conversation, though I'll tell you right up front that he saves what's probably the key ingredient for the very end. Let's check it out. My guest today, Steve Ridgway. Thanks for being with me. My yep. pleasure. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's a little different for me this time because I'm a little more familiar with my guests. Uh, but we'll we'll get to that some other time. For now, wow, 50 years. As I I've, I think I mentioned in my notes or sent you some notes here, 50 years in anything, 50 years in any career, in any craft, uh, in any endeavor at all is a lot. It's quite an accomplishment. Congratulations, first of all. Oh, well, thanks. Sure. So, so second, could you have ever pictured yourself in travel? Well, first of all, let's go back to the beginning. You weren't supposed to be in travel in the first place. Ancient history, right? Yeah. <laughs> back, way back to the beginning. Uh, we, we've heard that you weren't supposed to be in travel at all. You're, you, this, this wasn't the plan. Is that right? That's correct. I was going to go on to grad school, in fact, uh, law school. But I had uh, several months to go before school started, and so I needed to to generate a little bit of income. And I ended up working for a wholesale tour operator in my hometown that, that by coincidence, was one of the best tour operators in the country. So part luck. Yes, absolutely. As most things. Absolutely. Right. Anyway, by the time... Um, by the time the fall rolled around and I was supposed to start school, I was hooked. I was hooked uh, by travel. I had the bug. And that happens to a lot of people in this industry, I think. Right. I, well, I was going to get to that later, but this is something. So you, you were ready. You were ready to go to grad school. Oh, yeah. And just nixed it all because yeah. you thought you, you, you discovered your career. I did. Yeah, I was accepted. I was ready to go to school. Um, but... I thought about the place that I was, the work that I was doing, the people that I was with, and I realized um, everybody was enjoying it. Everybody loved it. And I did know a few lawyers back then, um, and I didn't know any of them who were very happy with their work. <laughs> so, so we were talking law school. I don't think we mentioned that in this, in this part. So yeah, you were, you were ready to go to law school. I was. I was. So but you, but uh, you, most you, of the lawyers I knew, well, they were either upset because... Well, they were handling clients who were either upset because somebody was suing them or 
upset because enough to sue somebody else, or there was some issue they were having to deal with, or there was a lot of monotonous contract work involved. And I realized, well, you know, life's too short uh, to get involved with something that you don't enjoy doing. What you're really saying is you dodged a bullet. Yeah. <laughs> I did. No, apolo- apologies to my, <laughs> I lawyer, did. my lawyer friends. All right. Let me say too, 50 yeah. years. I think uh, times have changed a little bit because back then, way back then, it was more common for somebody to get into a profession and stay there. Sure. Uh, I mean, this happened uh, with my dad, happened with my wife's dad, uh, grandfather. uh, And back then, uh, let's face it, most of the time, men were the ones at work, women were the ones working in the home. Uh, but they, all these guys stayed in the same profession their whole lives. So uh, it's a little bit different now. It's not so unusual for somebody my generation to have kept doing the same thing. No, I agree with that. However, most of them still didn't stick with it for 50 years plus. That's true. Well, and the fact that I'm in the travel industry, some people would say I'm just a glutton for punishment, <laughs> having stayed in it for 50 years, because it's not easy. Right. The work is certainly enjoyable, but there are ups and downs. Well, let's get into that then, All because right. this, is, this is what, this is clearly, I mean, it's a hot topic now. This isn't a news podcast. This isn't a current events show. However, we are in the midst of a global pandemic, and so it, you know, we, we can't ignore that fact. There are ups and downs, and you've been through a bunch some of pretty dramatic ups and downs uh, you know, do you, looking back, do any of them stand out the ups or the downs? And I mean, is this, this seems now in it, it's hard to, to judge it historically, but I mean, it's, people are talking about it. Like this is the worst, Mm -hmm. uh, hit to travel that they can remember. Well, uh, this one's different. Uh, actually it's different because it's different because when it began, I thought it might just be another pandemic. You know, there was a ship quarantined in Japan. We'd been through the bird flu, H1N1. We'd been through Ebola. I even uh, got in touch with a few very, very anxious participants who were thinking they should cancel from upcoming trips and said, look, this has happened before. It, It shall pass. Nobody expected it to last this long. And so if you put it in the perspective of all of the challenges that I've faced in my career, this one is by far the biggest because um, in the case of our company, uh, we, won't have, we won't be able, in a position to generate any business for well over a year. Right. It hasn't usually, if there's something like a, a, a war, for example, yeah. or a terrorist attack, things don't go from 100 to zero right. overnight, right? I mean, they right. might for a day or two or a week, maybe And even. they recover more quickly. Right. Well, I was going to point that out. Um, in my career, I would say the first real challenge that uh, my company, the company I was with, uh, de- had to deal with was uh, the Gulf War. Saddam yeah. invaded Kuwait mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a, a cer- certainly traveled to that part of the world stopped. Uh, For some companies, it was uh, more devastating than for others. Uh, Then here came 9-11. That one was different in that everything stopped all over the world. I mean, we had had a a trip scheduled to go cruise the St. Lawrence Seaway into the Great Lakes, and nobody would go (laughs) because nobody wanted to get on an airplane. So that one took a while to, uh, it, it took a while for us to recover from that one as well. Uh, but at least we still had some business going on. And then uh, 
And then the third really challenging one for us was the recession, 08, 09. Uh, the stock market collapsed. Uh, people um, stopped traveling for a while. Uh, everybody had to cut back. Uh, but again, uh, there was at least some business going on, and it gradually rebuilt. Uh, but this time, we still don't know how soon people are going to start to book again, uh, whether they'll be chomping at the bit and eager to go, uh, or whether it'll it'll ramp back up gradually. There's still a lot of unknowns, and here we are, what, six, seven months into it. So this one, this one by far is has been the most challenging, and remains the most challenging, um, certainly in my career. But I, I'm I, obviously it's not restricted to travel. Of course, uh, every, well, let's everybody's suffering. Let's uh, hope that whoever's listening to this, by the time they're listening, <laughs> this will be ancient history, and uh, and things will have uh, been, at least be on the road to recovery. Uh, and we talked. To, so we we've been through the lows. I mean, are there any? real highs or real, real sort of big moments, you know, or big uh, changes or accomplishments that stand out in your memory? If no, then... Well, you know. uh, I would say that as, as I look back at my uh, career, uh, a couple of things stand out for me. One is uh, the fact that uh, we have an amazing group of people. Uh, we kind of, here again, it's just luck of the draw. We kind of fell into uh, doing what we do a bit by chance, but it's a group that meshed terrifically well and became uh, terrifically loyal to one another. Uh, wonderful group. And I'd, I'd say one of the things I'm most proud of is that even through um, the dot-com bubble in the 90s, uh, our office was uh, on the peninsula in the Bay Area, and a lot of people and a lot of businesses were leaving uh, hoping to get rich in tech, and we didn't lose anybody. Everybody, everybody kept working because uh, we enjoyed what we were doing. We enjoyed uh, working with each other. Uh, same thing happened you know, post uh, post nine eleven through the recession. Uh, even now, we've lost a few people through these really challenging times. But for the most part, everybody not only stays together, continues working hard and with a, a positive feeling about the future. And so I'm, I'm really proud of our group. Uh, I should also say I'm proud of the fact that in our profession, in, in affinity travel, uh, we, we, um, we've honed in on uh, the organizations that we feel best fit what we most enjoy doing, and that is developing programs that have a pretty strong educational content, uh, programs that help, help the, the participants learn more about the destination than the average traveler. And, and we targeted uh, the, the client organizations that most strongly emphasized that educational aspect and those that could provide uh, the most stimulating and informative lecturers, could help us uh, open doors in-country, provide private access, really, really create and operate some terrifically rich educational programs. And we've... We've kept our focus on that relatively small group of clients. There are, you know, 10 or 15 through the years that have continued to be our clients. That's where our focus has remained. And that's the other thing I think that I'm, I'm most proud of, the people we have and the clients that we work with. Uh, and pretty, pretty rewarding. Well, you touched on a couple of things there that I want to get to. Uh, one of them is the type of travel that you're in now and that you've been in for a little while now because it is a – sort of a, a uh, lesser known 
sort of mysterious niche within the travel business. But first, I want to talk about the people because in most businesses, I think it's pretty clear that success or or positivity or you know any kind of metric you want to measure as far as happiness or things like that, it's about the people. And what's interesting about this group of people and many travel professionals is sort of like you, they didn't start off looking to go into the travel business. I mean, you don't go to school for travel for the most part. Mm -hmm. You don't train, you know, there's no travel major at almost any university. Uh, There's no, there are some, you know, specific programs that might do, you know, hospitality training or, or that type of thing. But for the most part, these aren't people that set out to be travel professionals, but like you, they fell into it, caught the bug. I mean, what, what is it? it? Is it, what is it about the travel business or maybe this, the travel business is pretty broad, right? So what is it about the, you know, tour business, the tour operator business, do you think that is so attractive or is so, so magnetic that these people just stick with it, including yourself? Maybe you haven't reflected on that for yourself mm-hmm. in 50 years, or maybe it's, it's been too long since you did, but, but it seems like it happens again and again where somebody came from a, another industry, came from another business, uh, came from something completely different than tour operator, and yet here they are. Right. Well, you and I have talked about this a little bit. In fact, it's one of your favorite things to say. Whenever you get with a group of new people, new friends, parents at school, whatever it is, and you start talking with one another. Uh, you go around and say, hey, what do you do? What do you do? And it becomes your turn. And you say, well, well, I'm with a company that uh, puts together educational, educationally focused tours and cruises for alumni associations, museums. And all of a sudden, everybody gets interested. And they start asking you more questions. And that's not the case for most people. That's right. Somebody says, oh, I have a job you know, over here or over there. And nothing against other professions and those other jobs. They just aren't as interesting to most people. And I think a part of the reason that those of us who are in the travel industry enjoy it so much and stay in it is that, uh, is that we know other people think we're lucky and they, they're envious of us. And in, in fact, it's really funny because whenever I tell somebody new that I'm in the travel business, they look, they, they look at me and say, wow, this must be great. You get to see the world. Travel all the travel time. travel and get paid right. for it. And actually, I have a desk job right. you know? and for a lot of years in my profession, especially when my family was younger. Uh, I didn't travel much at all. I just had a desk job. But it's it's uh, the content. You know, it's what we do that stays so interesting. Um, and I think that's why so many people stick with it. And, we, and by the way, we do have some people uh, in our group that were trained to do the things that they are doing. I mean, you're a good example um, Bridget, our marketing department, uh, you've, you guys got trained about how to market, you know, the business, you know, printing, uh, you know, production, you know, we use some, uh, some freelance, uh, production designers. This is their profession. Uh, and, uh, the same is true, uh, perhaps with our passenger services department. You know, we have folks who have been on the phone with people who have been, uh, passenger service specialists or reservationists. Uh, in some cases, had been travel agents taking care of uh, of travelers and all, all the logistics of travel. 
And so they come in pretty much trained trained to do that. But um, but I would say that the people uh, in our group who end up developing trips and handling them operationally, there's no training for that. You have to do it internally. Uh, it's something that takes a while. That it skills it takes a while to develop those skills. And uh, once you've developed them, the, you're a pretty rare bird. And I think that's one reason this senior group has been uh, our core group that has stayed together for you know, 20, 25 years in some cases because it's a lot of working together and learning from one another and supporting one another and doing something that you know, we, don't, we hardly know anybody else who does this kind of thing. And so uh, it's pretty special. Yeah, well, that, it, it must be fulfilling and there must be a sense of accomplishment and fulfillment in it because, like you said, it's hard work and it's tedious and it's, uh, it's not easy to do. It's not something that you can breeze through. There are high expectations. There's pressure. There are, there's a lot of money involved uh, from a passenger side, you know, so they have high expectations. The clients are, uh, are also have high expectations. Uh, they, there's something special about it, and maybe it's not something that we can put in words uh, because it is, it is a hard way to do business, and it's a hard road to sort of, rerun mm-hmm. every year. Yeah. And yet here we are. And this is a segment of the travel business that you've been in for the majority of your career. Right? I mean, you're talking about oh, 30 yeah. years in this in this business now. Yeah. 30 years in this part of the business. Yeah, and let me talk a little bit about how I fell into this too because um as as the folks who have been around me a long time have heard me say many times I grew up in a little university town in the Midwest. You know, father was a professor. My grandfather was a teacher. Um, a, really a, an educationally focused family. My brother is a teacher. You know. And so um, I grew up in a, in a household of teachers, in a family of teachers. And then, uh, and then when I ended up working on a, what I thought would be a short-term basis with a tour operator, and I started to get more interested in travel, and as I say, that caught the travel bug, uh, then um, I decided that's the way I was going to go. But then, uh, a few years later, and probably, let's see, I I would say this would have been maybe 12 years, 10, 12 years later, I I discovered educational travel. And to me, educational travel is the best of both worlds. It's the best of the travel business and the best of education. There's no better way to learn about a destination, to learn about the people in another part of the world than to go there and to experience it with a group of like-minded travelers, with a, with a group of experts to help you learn. I mean, there's just about no better way uh, to learn and travel than to combine the two. Sounds fabulous. All right. Let's talk a little bit. I mean, again, thinking back about the 50 years that's why we're talking. 50 years is special. You don't come across it every day uh, in any business, in anything at all. Uh, and 50 years is also a long time. Uh, a lot can change in 50 years. I mean, the technology has obviously changed a lot just over the last couple of decades. The type of travel that people do, thinking back to the early days, it was a lot different. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like about everything, but I would say almost everything has changed hmm. uh, during those 50 years. Um, 
most everything has evolved. You know, back in those early days, I actually started uh, in the, in the business for a, a retail travel agency office with the company that was also a tour operator. So I've been a travel agent, and I can tell you that uh, talk about change! Oh my gosh. Back then, in order to make an air reservation, somebody had to come into our office, had to tell us you know, where they wanted, when they wanted to fly, from where to where. We had a big book called the OAG, the Official Airline Guide. It was put out pretty regularly. It like was a like, phone book. like a phone book, right. yeah, well, or a big catalog. Back then, there were also like Ward's catalog, Sears catalog. Anyway, we'd look up their flight. Everything was regulated by the government. Uh, and so the flights were there. The fares were all fixed. In order to book a flight, we had to pick up the phone and call the airline and say, okay, I have, uh, I have a request for two seats on such and such a flight on such and such a day. And so we'd get uh, a confirmation over the phone. And then we'd have to go to the safe, pull out what we call the ticket validator, put in a metal plate from that airline, put in some blank ticket stock, validate the ticket, handwrite it, and give it to the individual once they paid. And, of course, uh, back then it was all checked, no, no credit card. So uh, fast forward, and there are, you know, it's so easy to book a flight. Now you just go online. Or ask Siri to do it for you. Yeah, that's right. Talk, talk about a huge change uh, for sure. And then back then, too, travel was a bigger deal, I would say. Uh, I mean, travel from, from a hometown to the next biggest city was a much bigger deal. And people took trips. When they took them, usually they were longer. And let, let's talk about tours and travel. Because then I went, uh, uh, gravitated over to the tour operator. Almost all were land tours. And almost all international land tours were two or three weeks, sometimes a month long. And that's so different now. People travel, you know, much more frequently for much shorter periods of time. Right. Uh, totally different. Uh, I'd say, uh, obviously, another aspect that's changed a lot is air travel. And let's not even talk about what's happening during the pandemic. But uh, in my early days in the business, uh, I actually flew on the inaugural flight uh, for Transworld Airlines, TWA, in a 747, one of the first 747s that was delivered. And that thing, through decades, was a workhorse, and now they're gone. They're all gone. And now we're looking at Dreamliners. We're even looking at spaceflight. Uh, so, and so dramatic changes in transportation. And one aspect of that is the cruise business. Uh, back then, when I began, uh, cruises were primarily means of transportation. There were transatlantic cruises. There were a few world cruises. Leisure cruising really hadn't geared up. Now, look what a huge industry it is. But I would say that uh, those are some of the biggest changes um, in our industry, uh, from uh, telephoning reservations to, to the Internet, and, and particularly in transportation. However, looking back at the last 50 years, one thing that hasn't changed is those top destinations, right? I mean, oh, the, sure. the, the places that people want to go first. Yeah. I mean, for the most part. I mean, they, you, nobody went to Bali 50 years ago, right? Uh, but And it's a top destination now. However, the iconic sort of bucket list, when you talk about things like Egypt, the pyramids in Egypt, sure. right? Or, uh, you know, Rome, you know, London, Paris, Rome, this type of thing. That desire is still there. That hasn't changed. Absolutely. In fact, the very first trip that we still have scheduled for next year is a trip to Egypt because it's a place that 
that every world traveler wants to visit at least once. So there are certainly those iconic places and, you know, a lot of them in Western Europe for those of us in the U.S., but they are all over the place like Machu Picchu and Easter Island and, and the Great Wall of China that will probably come back, Antarctica. Um, I can tell you that, uh, yeah, uh, part of the joy that I've been able to experience in traveling is to discover some of those places. Um, I remember the first time I set foot in the Galapagos Islands, and I've described it ever since, and I've been there a few times, I've described it ever since as one of those places um, for which every visitor has pretty high expectations that almost always exceeds those expectations. It's really special. And yeah, the opportunity to, to help uh, some travelers experience some of those places, they're maybe, um, maybe places that they aren't likely to go on their own uh, or places in, in more challenging parts of the world where there are language issues, et cetera, et cetera. We can help smooth the way and really show people. I, I should say too, uh, one of the nice things that we do is to help people see what they might not have seen themselves when they go to some of the popular places. Uh, for example, one of my favorite experiences in London, and most all of our travelers, I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> most all of our travelers have been to London right. or they're likely to go. Uh, but even, even if they haven't been and they're likely to go, there are certainly places that they aren't likely to see. Uh, and I remember... Uh, distinctly, my visit to the Imperial War Museum in London. London is such a rich place culturally and historically. Uh, the Imperial War Museum is one of maybe hundreds of museums there and not very high on very many people's lists. But to me, uh, I, so in, I so appreciated the, vi the visit there because um, it's a war museum and it's not that I'm you know a warmonger, but uh, the focus there was World War I. And that's something I really hadn't learned about. And so you go in the lobby, and, and it's a grand, grand old building with a huge dome on a whole city block, you know, south of the river. It isn't uh, an easy place to get to necessarily in London. Here under the dome is a history of the tank, and it starts with the most rudimentary little tank-like vehicles, and go. It went all the way up to you know Sherman's or whatever post World War II. Uh, and it was interesting to see the evolution. And the tank was developed. Uh, because of trench warfare, it, it was a way to get across no man's land between trenches during uh, World War One. During World War One, and in the basement of that museum is a recreation of of the trenches. And I had known almost nothing about trench warfare, and it boggled my mind that there was so much that I hadn't realized. Uh, and that visit, that once a visit to that museum, just uh, really impressed me. First of all, with uh, with what it must have been like in World War One. But secondly, uh, impress me again with that, how little that I really know. And right. there's so much to learn. Right. And in a place that you had probably been to London yeah. several times and knew nothing about the place. That's yeah, uh, Not as often as you've been to London. Or, well, well, let's move on. And then, so you mentioned quickly, before we move on here, let, you mentioned space travel. Yeah. Where do you see, do you have any speculation? Do you have any feel for where travel might be going in the next 50 years? Well, I have some <laughs> I have some doubts that space travel will will become a high volume operation. Will take off. Uh, uh, very good. Uh, in part because another interest that I've gained because of uh, my involvement here is is uh, cosmology, 
and uh, physics, uh, astrophysics, and I'm thinking, you know, we can talk about going to the moon, uh, go to the going to the moon, and then we've been there. But when we start talking about going to Mars, going to Venus, uh, building uh, civilization, building habitable places on other planets, even when within our tiny solar system. I don't, I don't see it happening. In Not in the next volume. 50 years. No, but then we have people like Elon Musk who are, who are true visionaries and who, you know, if it's going to happen, it'll happen because of people like that. Sure. Pushing, pushing the envelope. Right? Yeah. Uh, and it's, there's no telling really, right? I mean, 50 years ago, who would have, we, we couldn't have predicted the internet. Oh, we couldn't so. have predicted, mm-hmm. uh, you know, online booking and, and uh, I mean, air travel has changed, but it's, Sort of the same. Just faster. Uh, yeah, but yeah, faster, a little more comfortable. Well, I'm not sure more comfortable. Not if you're, uh, yeah, not if you're, it depends on what class you fly in, but uh, you can get away with wearing more comfortable clothes. That's, that's for sure. True. But we have way more cruising. I mean, can cruising get any bigger? I mean, how much, how big can it get? There's so many ships and, and, uh, you know, things like that. I mean, it is, where does travel go from here? I don't know. Well, uh, the ships get bigger and bigger, and all the predictions are the market will continue to grow. And that's why, that's why uh, so much investment is being made in building new vessels. And not necessarily bigger, certainly they are, but so many. I'll tell you, one, one trend that we see is expedition cruising. Mm-hmm. Because when you have you know, two, three, four, five thousand people on a ship and you have a bunch of ships in a popular destination, it detracts from the experience uh, unless you decide to go just to stay on the ship and take advantage of all the amenities. Uh, and so now uh, the, the trend is toward expedition cruising and that means small ships, um, probably no more than a couple of hundred berths. But oh my gosh, there are, last I saw, there were 30-some small expedition ships planned or under construction. And so the same thing is going to happen there. It's, 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 uh, I, there's a limit. There just has to be a limit. But that, that's the next trend in cruising, that's for sure. And that is smaller ship expeditionary cruising, going to some of these places that aren't already overrun by big ship passengers. Any stock in uh, virtual travel? Oh, well, of course, that, that is probably the real growth area and that is i don't buy it i don't buy it i think it's a trend that will come and go yeah you have to be there you have to be there (laughs) well i would like to think so all right well let's take a quick break come back and talk about something much more important and that's your coffee routine All right, back with Steve Ridgway. 50 years of travel, 50 years in any business again. I mean, it's, 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 I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. We can talk about that all day. We have to move here into one of my favorite subjects. And I have a little inside track here because I happen to know you have a grind and brew coffee maker. How has your coffee habit changed over the last 50 years? 50 years ago, we didn't have Starbucks on every corner. We didn't have grind and brew automatic coffee makers. I mean, what has, were you always a coffee drinker? I was not. Uh, no, my coffee habits have changed a lot. And in fact, I didn't drink coffee for uh, most of my young adult life. You just didn't grow up with it. Parents didn't drink it. Uh, but what was wrong with that? I noticed, uh, well, it didn't taste good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I noticed 
that uh, while I was working at Maupentour, the first company, so in the first stage of my career, uh, I noticed that my staff was always very alert to whether or not I would have a cup of coffee in the morning. And if I came into the office, especially, you know, a Monday morning or or uh, maybe a, one, a morning after uh, uh, during the NCAA basketball tournament or something like that, if I came into the office and had a cup of coffee, they steered clear of me, at least through the morning. <laughs> Just a minute. I'm taking some notes here. <laughs> but then... Um, uh, but then I would say that uh, once I started drinking coffee, it really became more a matter of convenience. I don't have a very sophisticated palate. And to me, drinking coffee was just uh, a means of getting some caffeine into me and uh, keeping me alert. And everybody in this business will, will tell you that, uh, that we need coffee on occasion because sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, we work into the wee hours. I mean, it was very uh, common for me in the early days if, for example, we had a we had a brochure proof to check, um, and I would get it in the afternoon, I would sometimes work all night, uh, many times, in fact, work all night, um, s- selecting photos, proofreading, whatever. If there was something else that needed to be done and uh, an urgent deadline, in fact, in, in our business, we can't roll the deadlines. Uh, we need to have everything ready when a trip, when a tour is ready to go out the door. Uh, there's no postponement. And so sometimes the work gets pretty intense and coffee becomes very important. One of the tools. That's right. Well, and then so in the early days, and, and I, I started to, I was very happy with the invention of pod coffee. Uh, but, uh, you know, you ask about uh, my grind and brew now. I, I, outgrew, I outgrew pod coffee. And I really do appreciate uh, that freshly ground cup of coffee. And I would say... Uh, I noticed the difference uh, with Phil's Coffee in Palo Alto, California. Right, right, right. It was a Phil's a few blocks from our office. And every time I'd go there and I'd get to choose a different blend and right. then have it ground and they fresh. Do, they do the little pour over. They do the pour over. Right. And I noticed, well, it makes a difference. Yeah. It makes a difference. And so now, yeah, I grind and brew at home. And then uh, I made sure that when we found an office location, our current office location, there is a coffee roaster right across the street <laughs> with a walk-up window. Yeah, that's it was good planning. I was going to mention that. You beat me to it because we just so happen to have a coffee roaster directly across the, across the street that makes the good stuff. And, and it's, it's the source for you. Right? Absolutely. That's great. That's great. Well, is there, do you have a routine or is it just set it, you set that thing to, to grind and pour it and hit the road? Well, the only routine is, is it a weekday or a weekend? I mean, it's all different now, obviously, with the pandemic. The only routine is if it's a weekday or a weekend. If it's a, if it's a weekday, I have it set so that uh, my wife, Emily, and I can have the coffee that we want uh, to begin the day. If it's a weekend uh, and I know that I'm going to be in the house, then obviously it's a bigger batch. And it's so easy to, to uh, just change the setting. Pretty easy on that machine so that I can have another cu- a cup or two. Little, uh, little milk and sugar or is that too... Uh, how no, do you, no sugar, I, oh. milk or some kind of flavoring. Okay. Here's another coffee habit of mine. It's pretty interesting because guess what? I've found that after I've had a cup of coffee, I'm usually more alert oh. <laughs> and can think a little more quickly. And so over the last few years, it has become my habit. You can talk with any of the folks who have accompanied me 
on uh, on trips back east or wherever where I visit with clients, almost always before I go into a meeting with clients, particularly if we're going to talk about future trips and uh, it's going to be a pretty intensive visit for an hour or so, uh, describing what trips might be like and, and it's essentially uh, con- trying to convince clients to sponsor these programs, I will almost always find a way to have a cup of coffee before I go into those meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, I found too that... Um, Usually, and I, I moderate the one scheduled call our company has, I should say a meeting our company has each week, and that's, that's a weekly staff call. And I end up as the moderator usually, and I think it's important uh, to, to set a, an energetic tone, a positive tone in that meeting, and so uh, on that call. So I'll almost always have a cup of coffee before that call. And uh, I don't know, you can probably tell the difference if I, if I miss that coffee then uh, I put everybody to sleep. I think, uh, I think I can take a hint and you're telling me I should have had a coffee before this interview. Is that what I'm hearing? Is that what I'm hearing? All right. All right. Well, thanks. Listen, I know you have to run. I appreciate it. Hey, we're kicking off the podcast, the entire podcast run with this episode. So uh, listening back, when I go back to edit, uh, it better be good. <laughs> well, listen, I'm available if you want to uh, re-record anything. Or if in talking here you um, you think of something that you w- should have or would have or could have asked and you want to. Maybe the it'll be charming, the little mistakes <laughs> that we made. Yeah. Anyway, thanks again. And I, I want to I go all the way back to the beginning here and say uh, 50 years, congratulations. I mean, that, that really is truly an accomplishment. It really is truly something to be proud of. Uh, 50 years in anything especially 50 years in a business like this and in a pressure cooker, you mentioned that we, we can't push a deadline, a date's a date. Uh, there are high expectations. There are, there is pressure from many angles and, uh, you know, you've, you've done it with, with class and with grace. Is that the right word? Uh, it's, it's a pretty good right word. word. It's not the right word. I, I'm not going to go with grace and, You've done it with class and you've, you've done it with humility and the next 10 or 15 years in this business will be just as good. Hey, that's good to hear. Well, listen, I have to say too, first of all, thank you for this. Thank you for the initiative too, to get this string of podcasts going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say, we talked about the fact that I kind of fell into this. I got lucky when, when I, I fell into the travel business. I should say I got lucky too uh, when I met my wife Ooh. because... The reason that I've been able to focus on this and give it the energy and the attention that I have uh, is because she's had my back. Well, behind every good man, right? I can, uh, I second that. I second that. I have a little inside, uh, insider information there as well. All right. Thanks, Steve Ridgway. Uh, Travel Grind podcast, episode number one. That's a wrap. Thanks, everybody, for listening and signing off. Travel Grind podcast is brought to you by Criterion Travel, a specialty tour operator that works with affinity organizations to develop and run expert-led educational group tours all over the world for travelers interested in diving deeper than the average tourist. To find out more, visit them online at criteriontravel.com. And for more episodes and other goodies, find us on the web at travelgrind.show or using the social media handle Travel Grind Show. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.